All right. <clears throat> we have a few announcements. First of all, uh, Mac Nichols' funeral is tomorrow, Wednesday, December 18th, at the Veterans Memorial Funeral Home, which is over near the Veterans Memorial Cemetery. And the viewing is from 9 to 12 tomorrow, and then the service begins at 12.15. Then uh, that will be followed by the internment at 1.15, and then a reception after that from 1.45 to 3.45. I will be giving the introduction, and Albert is giving the funeral message itself. And the next Tuesday night, instead of our regular Bible class at 7.30, we'll have a Christmas Eve communion service at 7 o'clock. So for those of you live streaming, especially in other time zones, uh, pay attention to that time, uh, that time difference. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're spiritually prepared, ready to focus on what the Lord has for us, what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us, uh, tonight, in further understanding his word and what uh, he has revealed about the value of human life. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to become spiritually prepared, to confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together today. We need to refresh our minds so frequently from the garbage that often comes through it, just from the culture around us, just from conversations we hear, just from our own sin nature. And we need to recognize that we are forgiven of sin and cleansed and that we can focus upon your word and it restores our soul. It encourages us, strengthens us, gives us a proper focus, shifts our mental attitude. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study, we'll continue to learn about the value of life, what the scripture teaches, and to help us think through these issues and its implications. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Tonight, we're going to continue. This will be the third part in this little mini-series topical study that um, I'm coming at via First Samuel 12, the birth and then the death of David's uh, son as a re the, the uh, firstborn with Bathsheba, uh, the death being the result of, of uh, divine discipline because of their adultery and his conspiracy to commit, uh, to commit murder and have Uriah killed and then to cover it up. And so I started... Actually, before I got into this three-part set, we talked about what happens when an infant dies or somebody who is mentally incapable of understanding the gospel and talking about how all of those who die before an age of accountability, which shifts, changes, it depends on the individual. Once their accountability is determined by when they can comprehend and understand the gospel and have the capacity to believe and once they reach that point, then they're accountable. Before that, if they die, then all will go to heaven. And so that led to talking about, well, when exactly does life begin? What are the issues there? This relates so much to a lot of things that have been, have been said. Now, in the past, what I did was I talked about the real issue, and the real issue has to do with the time of insolment. But we have to understand what is legitimately 
applied from that and what is not. Tonight, what we're going to look at is the main topic is, let me back that up, the value of life in the womb. How does the Bible describe that? What are we going to see? And so we have to look, first of all, at what is happening in the womb. What is taking place there? There are numerous passages that describe things, so we need to understand what they say and what they don't say. Second thing is we see that God uses these verbs where God's the subject, and the verb indicates God forming, God shaping, God covering the human biological life developing in the womb. Third, seeing the implication of that, the value of the human biological life in the womb, and the fourth, questions on specific passages. Every time I do this, I get a little further in exegesis, get a chance to look a little more in depth at something. I'm always surprised by something new and why some translations have a traditional translation, but it's not accurate. And so it leads to misconceptions. We started off, I go back to this article, Harold O.J. Brown, formative thinker, major influence on evangelicals in the rise of the pro-life anti-abortion movement. And even he states in this article he wrote for the uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society in 90, I think it was 94, critical. He says, the question of ensoulment cannot be answered scripturally. Now, that's wrong. I did think it can be answered scripturally, but what he points out is this is the critical issue, and today when you talk with people, they never talk about this. When is the soul in the, the uh, unborn child in the womb? When does that take place, and how do you know? And I think that the Bible demonstrates that. The question of, he says, the question of insolvent cannot be answered scripturally as the scripture makes no reference to the process at all. I think that's wrong. And we've demonstrated that, that the Bible teaches that it begins with the breath of life. And that last time we looked at the parameters again and again are from birth to death, not from conception. We looked very technically at the Hebrew language in the phrase from birth, you have a preposition and a noun, that there's no noun for birth in Hebrew. There's a verb for birth, but not a noun. The way that you state from birth is from the womb. From conception is possible. You can say that in Hebrew. There's a noun for conception, but you never have that. It never talks about that. It's always from, from the womb to the tomb, from the womb to death. So basically what he's pointing out is that science and law cannot determine when insolment does, and the problem with his view is that he says the scripture doesn't tell us either. What you're left with is making a decision on when there's full human life based on biology. If the heart beats, if there's uh, neurological development, then that means that it's full life. But um, And that's the weakness of his position. That doesn't have to mean that the soul's there. It just means that the mechanics are working. So as I pointed out, he says that whatever is in the, in the womb is human, and that's true. That's something that get, it's not something other. At the core of the whole uh, issue of when does life begin, it's like uh, you get, hear these arguments that what is in the womb is something other. No, it's not. DNA makes it very clear. It is human. It's not something else. It is, it is completely human whether the soul is there or not. He says scripture can't answer the question. As to the timing of ensoulment, I think that's false. I think all the passages that talk about the breath of life and God gives breath, all of those passages tell us that that's when it begins. That's when the soul enters the body. And the third observation is we don't want the government or the courts attempting to decide the time of ensoulment. Now, the implication of that's profound. Should, here's the question, should the law of the land, the law that applies to everybody in a nation, should the law of the land be based on information that is available and understandable only by Christians who can understand divine revelation. Think about that. We've studied it many times, 2 Corinthians 2.14. The natural or the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. 
So if Revelation tells us when life begins, should that be the foundation of a law that applies to believer and unbeliever when the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God? They can't reach, or should law just be based on those things that are clearly comprehensible to everybody, believer or unbeliever? That's really an important question. So the next part is, is a soul passed from one generation to another by procreation, or does God create each soul directly or immediately? And I looked at another article today written by a fairly well-known theologian and, and professor up at Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. I've read a number of things by him. He does some things. He always errs greatly in the direction of legalism. But he argues for traditionism and ignores what traditionism really is. Traditionism, as I pointed out, was uh, you know, in the early church you have to understand that they did not think technically for 200 years. They just basically restated what Scripture said. And then somebody would say, well, you believe in the God the Father, and you believe in God the Son, and you believe in God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that three gods? And then they kind of sit back and go, well, hmm. No, it's not three gods, but we need to answer that. And so it's like around one... 55 to 200 with Tertullian, that he coins the term Trinitas to describe the three in oneness of the Trinity. See, before that, they believe it, but they haven't articulated it. They haven't gotten specific. They'll talk about Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, but nobody's asking, well, why is that only one God? Sounds like you're talking about three gods. So nobody's asking those probing questions are answering those probing questions. The same thing is true about the origin and transmission of the soul. They're, they're just not, they've never an, asked or answered that question. So he basically puts his view together and he's the first person who attempts to answer it. And that's called traditionism. But his view was, and this is inherent to traditionism, I don't care what moderns say, like this guy was reading Carl Laney, Carl Laney comes along and said traditionism means the um, transmission of the immaterial soul through procreation. Well, that's not what traditionism is. He's misrepresented it to fit his views on the origin of human life. Traditionism, as originated and defined by Tertullian, is the soul is material. How can immaterial soul be transmitted through the physical act of procreation? That's just absurd. And so the historical view always, until you get into a lot of muddled thinking after Roe versus Wade, is that it it was, you had traditionism and then creationism. William G.T. Shedd, I pointed out, said that creationism had been the most common view during the previous two centuries. This was in about the 1860s or 1870s when he wrote that. And that's dominant, but nobody was going around saying that that validated any kind of abortion. They never held to that, so that's an illegitimate application of the creationist view. Thomas Aquinas, the Roman Catholic, premier Roman Catholic theologian, the Middle Ages said it's heretical to say that the intellectual soul is transmitted with the semen. He just bolt. Traditionism is heresy. So you're left with creationism, that the body is generated through the physical generation and procreation that God designed, and then the soul is directly created by God and is imparted to the body. So a lot of people come along, well, you can't do that because then God would have to make the soul uh, sinful. Not if you understand that the sin nature is generated and passed along through the corruption of the DNA. It's physical. And so when the soul is imparted, it's created and imparted immediately into the body. There's no lag time. It's just instantaneous. The soul is corrupted by its presence in a corrupt, fallen body. And that's a very simple, solid answer. So in creationism, very important to understand these terms, direct and indirect. The God indirectly creates the body. He does it through the intermediate means of procreation. The soul is is created directly and immediately by God 
thought I changed that. It's directly by God through immediate means. No, that's right. Through immediate means. He does it immediately. He doesn't use an intermediate means to do it. He uses the intermediate means of procreation to create the body. So we looked at the starting point in Genesis 2-7, that first God forms the body, and then the body is the home of the soul, and then once the body is ready, then he breathed life into the body, and man became a living being, and that became the framework that we see again and again through Scripture. Then last time I really focused on this argument that I alluded to already tonight, that from birth, <clears throat> from birth you have the Hebrew word yalad, which is the verb to bear or to bring forth or to, or to give birth, but there's no equivalent noun. So when you say from birth, you have to have the vocabulary for it. It wasn't in Hebrew. There is a word used three times in the Old Testament, leda, that's built off of this, but it refers to a woman in childbirth. It's never used as the object of a preposition, so it's never used to describe anything related to the length of, of life. The word conceive is the Hebrew verb hara, and the noun is heryon, and to say from birth, you can do that in Hebrew. You have the preposition men, which means from. You have the noun heryon for conception. So if you wanted to say from conception to death, you had the vocabulary for it. The point is, there's nowhere in the Bible does it use that vocabulary to describe the parameters of life. It is always from the womb, which means from birth and, and death. And I pointed that out last time that many, many translations will translate that idiom men plus uh, betten, army betten, as from birth. <clears throat> we looked at biblical verses for the parameters of life, saw many of them like Ecclesiastes 3.2, a time to give birth and a time to die, not a time to conceive and a time to die. Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us, never mentions conception here. It's the birth that is significant. And then we ended, I've gone through nine points. I'm not reviewing them tonight for time's sake because I want to wrap this tonight. So we may be here till midnight, but we'll wrap it. Um, the value of human biological life within the womb. So first of all, we must understand that in the ancient world, culture after culture after culture, abortion was, was rejected. Abortion was criminal in many cultures, in the pagan cultures in the ancient world. Pregnancy and children were vital. Most of these cultures are agrarian, and that means you want children to help to work on the farm. Life was valuable. You had uh, high death rates, infant mortality. People value children in life. You do not randomly take that life uh, just because it seems inconvenient, because it, they all understood it was some kind of blessing from the gods. And biblically, it's viewed as a gift and a blessing. Every child is a gift from God and a blessing from God. Genesis 33, 5. And this is dealing with um, Esau. Jacob is coming back into the land. Esau is meeting him. And he looks up and he sees all these women and children with, that are with, with uh, Jacob uh, because Jacob has the two wives and two concubines and uh, 12 boys and one girl. And so Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he, that's Jacob, said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. That's the view. God gives us our children. That's why they're valuable. Psalm 113.9 says, He, meaning God, grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. See, mothers of children are joyful because they have children. Praise the Lord for that. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And blessed is the man who has many of them, that psalm goes on to say in verse 4. So these passages talk about uh, <clears throat> the value that's placed on, on uh, life. Now, second, sort of a second point here by way of this introduction, and I didn't put a slide up here for it, and that was according to ancient Assyrian laws, uh, it was a crime to abort a child. 
and <clears throat> they considered a woman guilty of an abortion, and if she was, they she was to be impaled on stakes. That was the early form of crucifixion developed by the Assyrians. So they considered that uh, very much to be an act that was criminal, and it was considered an, a criminal act against the state because the state needs to grow and have children and um, to support the elderly, the parents, to serve in the military, all of these other other factors. Now here are some observations. So I'm starting over with point one. These are just various observations. First of all, some passages speak of God's involvement in either allowing the mother to conceive or not. So you have God being involved in conception or barrenness. Now that's an important point, but we have to a very big caveat I'm going to give at the end of this. So the first area that we see this used when the in Genesis twenty nine, thirty one and following. Actually this goes down to about verse thirty twenty thirty five what is this, 29 to 35, and then 30 to 21. So I'll just hit the high points and put up on the screen. When the Lord saw that Leah, so Leah is Jacob's first wife. Remember, he got his, his bride switched on him. He was working to get Rachel, but on his wedding night, uh, his father-in-law Laban duped him and put a veil on Leah, and he woke up the next morning and he didn't have the wife he thought he would. He didn't have the woman he thought he'd marry. So he wasn't too happy about that. So when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. God's involvement in her, her womb. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now the caveat in all of this is all of this relates to the to the Abrahamic family. And remember in Genesis, it's all about the tracing the line of the seed. The line of the seed, the seed of the woman will will stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent. So all the genealogies, everything trace the line of the seed from Eve to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. So we, we see this is the line of the seed. So special things happen there. This is not patterns for everybody. This is distinctive to what God is doing in that family. So for a time, there's barrenness. We've studied this. There's six barren women that are highlighted in the Scripture, all of whom are used by God to bring about a special birth that's either in the line of the seed or like in the case of Samuel, and then the case of, I mean, excuse me, the case of Samson first, and then Samuel second they're going to be used to deliver Israel. So these are all important, and they all relate in some way to teaching something about the future coming of the Messiah. So in Genesis 29:31, Leah is going to have her womb open. She will begin to conceive, Genesis 29:32. So Leah conceived and bore a son. She named Reuben. In verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son. This is Simeon. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son. And this one she called Levi. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son. And that's Judah. And then we skip down to verse, uh, and then 3017, uh, God listens to Leah again, and she conceived and bore Jacob, a fifth son. And that's uh, Issachar. Then in verse 19, she conceived again and bore a sixth son. And that's Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. So this is in chapter 29, 31 to uh, 35 and 29, 31 to 35, and then 30, 17 to 21. And then in 30, 22, then God remembered Rachel. He didn't forget about Rachel. This is just an anthropopathism describing that now it's Rachel's term. God had put her on hold and she's barren all this time. And now God answers her prayer. And she conceived and bore a son and, so, and called him Joseph. And then later she'll conceive and bear a son named Benjamin. So this shows God is involved in what's going on in terms of the womb and producing children. Ruth 4.13, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That son is going to be David's grandfather, so it's all the line of the Messiah. 
1 Samuel 1.19, we have this episode with Hannah, who's barren. And uh, she goes and she pleads with God in a wonderful prayer that we've studied before in 1 Samuel 1. And God answers her prayer, and the Lord remembered her, and she conceives and gives birth to, to Samuel. So what we see in these cases is that God is involved very intimately, but that doesn't mean he's involved that way with every single case of a barren woman or, or a woman who becomes pregnant. He is, but in a less significant directive way. So we can't extrapolate to everybody else because this is all about the line of the seed, all about the Messiah, God's plan, and it's and what he's doing there is different from what he did with anybody else or any other family. It was all related ultimately to the virgin conception by Mary and the birth of the Messiah. Now there are other passages that talk about God's involvement in the formation of human biological life in the womb, the development of the body. And so there's a couple of different ways that we can look at this. How is God involved in the development of the physical body, the human body in in the womb? He has created a normal natural process. And that process begins with procreation, then there's fertilization, there's conception, there's the period of gestation and the development of the body until it's ready for birth, and then there is the birth. There's a couple of ways that this has been described, a couple of terms we could use. First of all, I want to explain these. We have passages that talk about God's direct involvement in things where God is doing something directly. He's not using intermediate means to accomplish his ends. So direct would mean God is directly involved, hands-on, as it were, the process of forming each baby in the womb. That's what direct would mean. Let me give you another example. God is directly involved in doing some things in Scripture. For example, God is directly involved or was directly involved in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He may have used angels, he may have used some other things, but he is sending fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities of the plains, and he's destroying them. It is pictured as God's direct act of judgment. Even more so, perhaps, might be the death of the firstborn in Egypt because it doesn't. there's no angel of God that does this. It is God who comes and takes the, takes the life of the firstborn. It is direct involvement of God. And as a result of that in both judgments, it's devastating, it's horrific, life is taken, and God directly is involved in that. Then we use the term indirect or mediate. Sometimes you read direct or immediate. This is indirect or mediate. This means that God is the indirect cause, for example, of shaping life in the womb. He does it through a process that he created. And so when we talk about that, uh, we use this term indirect or intermediate means and he uses the biological process of sexual procreation and fertilization and implantation, gestation, and eventual birth. So can you think of examples where God did some judgments using intermediate means? Well, the most obvious to me is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. You remember studying Habakkuk. You've studied Habakkuk where Habakkuk says, Lord, these people are so wicked and evil. You haven't said that about America, have you? These people are so wicked and evil, you need to do something about it. And God says, well, I've got the Chaldeans coming. They're going to take care of it. And he goes, what? How can you use them? They're, they're worse. So God is using the Babylonians or the Neo-Chaldean Empire or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, rather the Chaldeans, in order to bring this judgment on Jerusalem. And it's devastating. You know, so many people are killed and slaughtered and tortured, and the city is razed, and it's the temple is destroyed. God uses the intermediate means of the Chaldeans. Is that any less horrific or devastating for the inhabitants of Jerusalem than God's direct involvement was in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? No, not at all. It's just as horrific. God is still the author of that judgment. 
So whether God's doing it directly or indirectly doesn't give us the right to say, well, it's less significant. The reason I say that is that when we talk about the fact that God is forming life in the womb, that we say that's done through indirect means, it's done immediately, but that doesn't mean God is less in control, less involved. It doesn't give us the right to somehow minimize what's happening in the womb just because God is using a process because God uses lots of secondary and tertiary means to accomplish his goal, but we still have passages in Scripture that God did this, even though he used various different means in the process. So that brings us to some key passages. We have to understand that. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 and 15 and following, these are passages that people often bring up when talking about, well, look, it looks like God is really involved in what's going on in the womb. Yes, he is, but it's indirect. God is the creator of all of the processes involved in sexual procreation. God invented something called DNA. God invented the whole genome. God invented all of the cells. He invented all the subcellular particles. He invented all of that down to parts that we can't even talk about yet. God is just as much involved in the whole process in his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, just because he's using a biological process that he invented doesn't mean he's somehow less involved and what's going on in the womb is less significant. The scripture always talks about this as being important. So let's look at this. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts, David says. David's the author here. The first 12 verses really are talking about God's omnipresence and God's omniscience. Now we're talking about God's intimate involvement in the formation of David's body in the womb. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Doesn't that translation sound like God is just, he got, God's got his fingers in there doing everything? It doesn't say that in Hebrew. Psalm 139, 14, David's response is, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is true for every single human being. It doesn't matter what you look like. God is in control of that process. And, some, and even if there is what we call a birth defect, that doesn't mean that God, that that, that surprised God. Or that God didn't allow that for very purposes so that many people could learn many things. We just don't know. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows, that my soul knows very well. All right. Psalm 139, 13. You formed my inward parts. Is that clear to everybody? No, it isn't. Okay. This slide here. I have a a variety of modern translations. New King James is the one I read. It's very similar to each of these. The NASB 95 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Not covered, but wove. ESV, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Knitted, wove, and covered. Those all sound alike, don't they? Third one is the Holman Christian Study Bible. For it was you who created, now we've moved from form to created, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Okay, so you read all those, you think that this verb that's used here is a verb that's going to talk about creation, right? Wrong. Now let's look at some older translations. Now, these are not in the, let's start with the oldest, which is the third one down. I didn't put them in chronological order. Psalm 139, 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. That sounds a lot like the ones we just read, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Thou hast possessed my reins. What in the world are we talking about? Is this a horse? What are the reins? Possessed. Thou hast possessed. Well, I thought all those other translations says you formed or you created. This is a totally different idea to possess. But 
That's the Geneva Bible of 1599. That precedes the King James. That was the one that that Calvinists still love to use. Reformed Church. Psalm 139.13, this is Webster, this man Webster, I didn't look it up, but his translation in 1833, for thou hast possessed my reins. So we still have this idea of possessed, possessed or create. Psalm 139.13, this is Darby, John Nelson Darby, systematizer of dispensationalism, has his translation, he translated it, for thou hast possessed my reins. Well, let's look, let's look at the Hebrew for clarification. You form my inward parts. The word there is kana in the Hebrew. It means to get, to acquire, and then they throw in create. But I don't know too many places where that is really the idea. The, the theological word book of the Old Testament just lists two meanings, uh, or excuse me, those three were the TWOT, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. But the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis just gives the two meanings, to buy or acquire. You've heard, you've seen this word. We've talked about it, but not in a long time. You see it in the very beginning of the Bible, the first baby born, Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and then, nine months later, bore Cain. 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 Okay, hear the word, Cain. The Hebrew verb is kana. They're cognates. Cain for kana. Kana means to purchase or acquire. And this verse is translated, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I have a possession. Actually, it doesn't even mean that. It means I have a man, the Lord. She thought this was the seed of the woman. This was the Messiah and that this was God in flesh. She soon found out that she was wrong, but her initial perception was this was the, the, the fulfillment of the promise that God had made that your seed will stomp out the seed of the serpent. So, But the, my point is, this verb means to possess something. So that's why these older translations translated it, you have possessed, and then the word reigns. Well, that's another fun word. Um, reigns mean, literally means kidneys. And this was a, just a term to describe the, the inward... Uh, uh, bowels and everything of, of the body that's being formed inside the womb. So it's talking about, but it's talking about possession, God's ownership. This is this is God. So God is is in, it's emphasizing God's involvement in the womb. And then you have this next line: "You covered me in my mother's womb," and that's the word sakak, which has to do with weave. So it is, even though God is using the intermediate means, he is pictured as being involved and supervising what's going on inside the womb. Now we go on to, in these verses, Psalm 139.15, my frame, frame is his physical structure, his skeleton, his musculature, his body. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. So, so there's this, he's talking about this skill at which the body comes together. It's mysterious, but it's skillful. And he's fearfully and wonderfully made. Talking about his physical body. And your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And this is a Hebrew word, golem, which means embryo. So it's still talking about God's formation of the physical body in the womb and his involvement in that. That's why it has value. It's not just tissue. It's not just something that can be discarded. Actually, if you study the whole process, it takes a while before the embryo grows, and then it sort of splits into several parts. So one part will become the child, another part will become the placenta, another part, the other two things become different things. So which part actually becomes the the body of of the child is determined by all of this information God's plugged into the 
the DNA and the uh, procreative process. Charles Ryrie wrote a book, came out in 1974. I think I got one of the early copies. I saw it on a bookshelf, and it was great. It was called, You Mean the Bible Teaches That? And it had different chapters on different hot topics. Capital punishment was one of them. Giving was another one. I don't remember what all of them, they were great. I loved reading that book. And he had a passage on abortion. And he says, even if life in the womb is not the same as it is after birth, it is human life in a certain form. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's human life. It's the biological human biology that God has formed for the house of the soul. And just because the soul isn't there yet doesn't minimize the significance of the body. And he sa- then he says, and it is life which God is intimately concerned about. That's what these passages all teach. Now, that answers those first three questions I had in the introduction. And now what I want to do is look at some, um, some questions, qu- passages that people, that people bring, bring up. So let me see. I, may ha- I did. I slipped that slide in the wrong place. I want to look at one more from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, this is a word that we find back in Genesis chapter 2, where God, God formed the physical body of Adam. He uses the word yatsar, which is a verb used to describe the potter shaping the clay. And it means to form it and shape it. So now it says, I formed you in the womb, not out of the womb. He's talking about what's going on in the womb. And it, again, God is the subject, and he's using an active voice verb God, pointing out whether it's direct or indirect, God is still the one overseeing things. And he says, before you were born, I sanctified you. Now, in God's omniscience and his omni, his, uh, his timelessness that he's eternal, he doesn't, he looks at all of human history in, in like the blink of an eye. And so he knows that that before there is even procreation to form the body of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is going to be the product of that, and he will be saved, and God will set him apart to be a prophet. That's all it's talking about, is that in my plan, in eternity past, in my omniscience, I had you in mind, and I was going to designate you and set you apart as a prophet. It doesn't mean that, it, that, that he is fully ensouled in the womb. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you a prophet to the nation. So he's not talking anywhere here about what's going on in the womb or anything else. He's just talking about in God's omniscience, this was his plan in eternity past for Jeremiah. Now let's look at uh, problem passages dealing with John the Baptist. So this, this is really, uh, really interesting. Um, wait a minute, I have another passage here. We'll get to that later. Uh, I'll get it out of the way. Let me see. Where did I put this one? Okay, we're down here at slide 33. Okay, somewhere I lost this slide. Okay, I'll read the verse to you. It's Job. Job. Job 31, 15. Did he who made me in the womb make them? He's making a point that, that God, is, God is involved in everyone's life in the womb. Did not he who made me, this is the Hebrew word asah, which is used in the Genesis, in the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 accounts of, of creation of man, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Now, this is an interesting word. It is the uh, Hebrew word kun. And it means to be firm or to establish or prepare. So it's not the idea of forming in the womb. It is the idea of preparation. God is preparing that body in the womb 
for its future soul. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands have made me, that's Asa, and fashioned me. And again, that's the same word, kun. Established me, prepared me. You have made me and prepared me. And he uses me because, think back, when you talk about when you were in your mother's womb, it wasn't somebody else. It wasn't your sister. It wasn't your brother. It wasn't some kid down the street. It wasn't a mass of tissue. It was you. It was your body. Your soul wasn't there yet, but it was your body, so we have no other way to talk about it than that was me and my mother's womb. It wasn't somebody else. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the soul is there yet. We have no other way to talk about it. So your hands have made me and fashioned me. That's in the womb. You gave me understanding that I may learn your commandments. That is the creation of the soul and the intellect. So let's come to the problem with John the Baptist. Now, these are two tough passages in Luke 1. The first passage is absolutely devastating for the way people normally interpret this to indicate full human life in the soul. It's theologically devastating, and it's heresy if you take it the way most people want to take it. It just is. Let me explain. The angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that, that Elizabeth, his wife, has been barren. That's for God's purpose. He hasn't opened her womb yet because he's waiting for this time for, um, for the birth of John the Baptist. And so the angel says he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. That's like the Nazarene, Nazarene vow that was the vow of, of like both Samson and Samuel. Samson is said, he's called as a Nazarite, the Nazarite vow, he's called as a Nazarite from his mother's womb. And even when he, she's pregnant, she doesn't drink, she doesn't uh, violate the, the, the oath. doesn't mean he's saved in the womb. It doesn't mean his soul's in the womb. It just means that, that from that point on, there's not to be any involvement with anything related to grapes, grapevine, wine, any of those things that were for, forbidden and prohibited in a Nazarite vow. And so this is the same thing is true for John the Baptist. And then the verse says, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's New King James. Even from his mother's womb. Now here you get into the Greek word ek, which is the counterpart to men, the Hebrew preposition from. Ek means from. And the word for womb in Greek is koilea. And this is the counterpart for bibet. As I said, in the, in the Hebrew, this is an idiom for from birth. It's brought over as a Hebraism, as a, as a Hebrew idiom into Greek because Luke's Jewish. He's writing, readers are Jewish, and he's talking about uh, Jewish culture, so he's using uh, Hebrew idioms. Now, somebody's going to say, well, I've read several translations, and they all translate this from the womb. So it's talking about what's going on inside the womb. Pay attention to real scholarship. Even the NIV translates it from, the, from birth. And there are many other translations that also translate this from birth. The NET recognizes from birth as valid, even though they translate it differently. The contemporary English version translates it from the time he is born. The message translates it from the moment he leaves his mother's womb. They, all of these translators had their, uh, their dendrites working and their brain cells recognizing one another when they were doing this. Because if you got the big problem here is if the Holy Spirit is indwelling John the Baptist like he indwells church-age believers inside the womb, then he is the only person in history that has a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit before he trusts in Jesus as the Messiah, before he is regenerated. And that is theological heresy. 
That is absurd to think that there's a person in history who has the Holy Spirit without getting saved first. That's insane. Not only that, but I think, I can't prove it, because we just don't have enough examples of this in, in literature, that this phrase from birth doesn't mean from the instant, necessarily from the instant the baby comes out of the womb, because then that would mean John the Baptist as a brand new one day old baby is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he's still not saved. That's a huge problem. How can you understand this passage as meaning the Holy Spirit has a personal relationship with John the Baptist and he's still spiritually dead? It's the only example in the Bible. That's just absurd. And it, leads, it would lead to heresy if anybody thought beyond the end of their nose on this. So that's a real problem. Um, Luke one fifteen says, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we have to look at the word here. The word here is pimplemi. Now I'm going to turn in here to, to Luke 1. And the word pimplemi is not the same verb that is used in Ephesians 5.18 where we're commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The word in John, I mean in Ephesians 5.18 is, is plerao. They're related, but they're different. Now when you have pimplemi, we're going to see it again in a minute, and I'll talk about it more then. But when you see pimplemi in, in many passages in the Gospels, it is immediately followed by the person who is pimplamied by the Holy Spirit speaking some sort of special statement, make some special statement. So I think it's akin to some form of inspiration. So he's filled, by, and, and it's related not to the spiritual life of a church-age believer, but John the Baptist, Jesus said, is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So he's under the age of Israel. So this is like the, the role of the Holy Spirit on the judges, where he is empowering John the Baptist for a special task, a special role as the forerunner of the, of the Messiah. So it's not talking about being filled by the Spirit in the sense of a church-age believer or even being indwelt by the Spirit. Um, although it could involve indwelling because you had David was indwelt and Saul was indwelt and others were indwelt, but it was not for the purpose of their spiritual life. So the phrase being filled, it's of the Spirit. It is not with the Spirit. It is not a, a dative. It is a genitive. And he's filled from, uh, the idea is from the, from the Spirit. So this tells us this is like what's going on in Old Testament, Old Testament passages. Now, one example that I was going to go to, I talked about it a minute ago, is in Judges. Judges 13.5, where the angel announces to the mother of Samson, uh, Samson for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. That's from birth. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. So this is in Judges thirteen twenty-five. Much later, he's, he's grown before the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. So I've read some who say use Samson as an example of the Holy Spirit being uh, in the womb with him, and that, that doesn't fit what Judges says at all. Then we have Luke one forty one, And this is a difficult passage. It's not insurmountable, but it's a difficult passage for the position that I'm teaching. Okay, you just read it. It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. So this happened sometimes later, sometime later. And now Elizabeth is about five months pregnant. Mary comes to visit her. Mary has had the announcement that she's going to give birth to Jesus. And so she leaves home and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And as she approaches Elizabeth, uh, she uh, greets Elizabeth and we read, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe, that is the baby in the womb, John the Baptist, babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was 
filled with the Spirit. Now, this is the same word. Now, if you look at Luke one forty one, this this illustrates what I was saying earlier. If you look at Luke one forty one, and you read, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the next sentence in verse forty two? Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said. What did I just point out? Whenever you have pimplamy, it's always followed by some statement. The person who is pimplamy says something. A little later on, Mary will be filled, pimplamied by the Spirit, and then you have the Magnificat of Mary in Luke 2. So this isn't related to the spiritual life at, at all. So Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, and something happens. There is fetal movement. The baby moves in the womb. Now, the baby's at five months. Now, you'll have people in the great, that baby knew Jesus was out there. That's insane. It's not medically or biologically correct either. I read an article in the early 90s that said that a lot of people who play music for the baby in the womb, the baby doesn't have the neurological development at five, six, even seven months, even at birth, to really understand what's going on what, what's being heard. And it's not the baby that hears. Look at the text. When John the Baptist heard the greeting of Mary, he leaped in the womb. Is that what it says? No, it says when Elizabeth heard. And what's Elizabeth's response? Elizabeth gets all excited. And it's been demonstrated time and time again when uh, there is excitement on the part of a mother that it stimulates movement in the womb. So we see that that, uh, she says the babe leaped in her womb. So um, this phrase that is then described later on as leaping for joy, that's an interpretive statement made by Elizabeth. She said he leaped for joy. But when we look at the phrase leaped for joy, we think that means the baby has the joy. So does the baby have the joy or does Elizabeth have the joy? That's an important question that's going on here. So... Let me back up before I get too far away. As I was talking about this phrase from birth, a couple of quotes. This is from uh, a commentary on Job by Dormy. I'm also quoting from the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, volume 2, verse 97, that the beginning of one's life on earth is sometimes viewed biblically as when he comes out of his mother's womb. Okay, I'm not making this up. There are many theologians who hold this and articulate this, but they don't end up putting it all together. The TDOT says, this is what I'm quoting right here, birth then being the terminus a quo, that's Latin for the beginning. Birth then being the terminus a quo in life is often viewed both by Yahweh and by man as the beginning of a relationship. Okay, I'm just documenting that what I'm saying, even though for whatever reason it is never taught, it is ignored, I never heard this in seminary, but you read the scholarly literature and it's everywhere. But everybody since especially 1974 is so afraid of this because they assume that creation at birth, creationism at birth, this insolment at birth automatically justifies abortion and that's absurd. Okay, Luke one forty four, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting, this is Elizabeth's interpretation of the movement of the baby in her womb, for indeed, as soon as the voice of, of, of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now, is this to be translated because of joy? Or this should be translated by means of joy. What's the significance of the preposition that's there in the in the Greek? The preposition is the Greek preposition en or in, and the word leap is used elsewhere, like in Genesis twenty five twenty two in the Septuagint to describe just movement or activity inside the womb, and the word for joy is hagaliasis, which means joy or and with the preposition in it can be giving a reason or explaining the surrounding circumstances so let's talk about this for just a second any expectant mother 
may recognize that when there is external stimuli, that there is movement in the womb. Medical studies demonstrate time and again that the baby in the womb responds to external sounds, and it's called a startle reflex. It doesn't mean that there is the um, necessary uh, brain comprehension or response to what is going on inside the womb. In fact, the startle complex is also called the moral reflex and is one of many biological or neuromuscular responses in the fetus, according to an article in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, that this startle reflex involves the extension and then retraction of the arms and legs in the fetus in a convulsive movement that may last up to 10 seconds. A study conducted at the University of Southern California School of Medicine found that when an artificial larynx is placed against the mother's abdomen and produces a three-second sound, then the startle reflex in the womb is results in each case. It is a neurological-generated response. The brain is not possible to, I mean, to say that John the Baptist could recognize that it was Jesus. Now, it could be a miracle that God is causing the movement because he's, he's wanting this connection to be made about the Messiah, but the movement can also be a response to the mother's emotions and that the movement is in response to a physiological change uh, on the part of the mother that because of her strong emotions and because of the uh, biological stimuli that occurs because of her excitement, this causes movement on the part of the uh, baby in the womb. So the babe leaps, leaped in my womb not because of joy, not her joy, but by means of joy, by means of her joy. And so that would make a lot more sense. It is her joy that is causing the movement in the womb. And then she's interpreting that in terms of, of uh, recognizing uh, the presence of the Messiah. Last passage I want to look at, just look at it briefly. This is an extremely controversial passage. And you can read a lot of different people. I just want to point out a couple of things. This is the closest we get to anything talking about uh, the death, causing the death of a baby in the womb. And it's in Exodus 21, 22. New King James translation, if men fight and hurt a woman with child. So you have a situation where two men are fighting, a woman gets in the way and they knock her down or they fall on her or something, and she gives birth prematurely. Now, there were a lot of people who said she miscarries. Now, in miscarriage, the birth is, the, the, the child is dead in a miscarriage. And it's very clear that this is not talking about a miscarriage. This is talking about a live birth. What's interesting is Carl Laney just takes a lot of time to explain this is not a miscarriage, but then he misses the point. If it's not a miscarriage, then the child is born and breathes and becomes a living soul. Now, if there's damage or death that occurs after that, then you invoke the penalty that's stated in the next passage, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. So men fight, hurt a woman with child, so she gives birth prematurely, the child is born alive. Yet no harm follows. No, nothing more happens to the child or the woman. He, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So, but, but here's a point I was just making. Both sides agree this is not miscarriage, okay? This is the baby is born alive. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is not a passage that's going to give us any information about uh, abortion or intentionally taking the life of the child in the womb. So a lot of people ask this question, go to this passage, but... It's very simple. It doesn't address the issue. It addresses the issue of what happens after a child is born alive and takes the breath of life and is alive. So what we see is that the parameters of Scripture are that life is from birth to death, that God builds the body 
in the womb to prepare it to be a house for the soul. And because God is involved in this process, that no human being has the right to interfere. This is, this is morally wrong, it's spiritually wrong, it's ethically wrong. Because this is a valuable life that God is involved in bringing into the world. So that is uh, my understanding of all of these passages after looking at this, reading it, going around all the issues for 30 years. I don't see answers to my arguments. They're ignored, they're not stated, they're misrepresented. But I'd, I'd be glad to hear somebody explain where I'm wrong, but I haven't had anybody uh, able to do that because uh, you can't get around this evidence. So not that I'm the smartest guy in the room, but that is people are just, they get very emotional about this, they get very emotional about Roe Ro v. Wade, and they jump to all sorts of conclusions without really tearing the text apart in detail. So next week we have our Christmas Eve service and we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And then the next week we'll still have class. John Williamson, I've been working with him on Philippians. He'll be teaching Philippians. And I'll be in Egypt. And then the week after that I'll be back and you'll hear about Egypt. And we'll continue our study in Samuel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this evening, to see the fact that your word does give us answers when life begins and the value of life, the significance of life, and the importance to you of, of all human life, even life in formation. Father, we pray that you would just encourage us that we can keep our focus on our Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, uh, celebrating that, worshiping him during this time, and enjoying the season, but not forgetting the reason for the season. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.